Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. We're here for the Invested Podcast where we are having a very, very exciting and I would say lengthy conversation. Ah, but Five years now. All exciting conversations are lengthy. This is true. Well said. And the fact that we it's can totally go on for five years all. now <laughs> about investing is pretty impressive for something that Charlie <laughs> says, what would you do the rest of the semester? Um, so Wait, we have to if say all that exciting conversations are lengthy are also all lengthy conversations exciting. <laughs> no, that no. would not necessarily follow. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> But ours is somehow. So, what have somehow, we been talking about, you, Dad? What is somehow the, you all are sticking with us? What is the uh, what is the theme of Invested Podcast? What do we the do? reason for our existence? Yeah, what's the is, reason for our existence? To, we're out here to to teach you guys how the best investors in the world invest. No, we're not. When, we're, no, no, no. I have to stop you because we're really? just here That's to. Not, well, I'm not here to like teach you guys. Well, okay, I am. Oh, you're here to teach me. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to teach my daughter. And by extension, you guys will learn by looking over her shoulder yeah. how the best investors in the world manage to do investing, which oh, there's an argument about this. My definition of that comes from Warren Buffett, which is, you're an investor when you buy assets that produce cash flow for less than they're worth. Then you are investing. And since cool. there is somewhat large vicissitudes in life, things can happen like COVID, et cetera, <laughs> yeah. you need a large margin of safety. So it's not just buy it for less than it's worth, it's buy it with a large margin of safety for less than it's worth. And that's the way the best investors in the world do it. And in order to do that, there's some fundamentals. You have to understand the business that you're getting into the way you would understand any business that you would own or that you would franchise, that you would build. Understand it on that level as simply as understanding how a business works where you buy a house and you rent it. How would you choose that house? What What's the moat that protects it, that makes it that the rents are going to go up over the next 20 years. That's what we are understanding real investing is. And it doesn't matter if you're buying real estate and renting it, if you are buying a business and owning it downtown in some little town and buy a laundromat or a bar or own a restaurant, or whether you are involved in private equity or venture capital and getting into businesses, or whether you're buying public stocks, those are all businesses. And we should look at them all the same way. Yeah. Actually, I haven't told you this because it just happened a couple of days ago, but um, my husband and I are looking at maybe getting a vacation property and, and renting it out most of the time. And mm. 
it's I haven't really gotten too into it yet, but um, but it's been kind of fun to like take this methodology and really for real apply it to the business of a rental property and look at the moat and think about the management and um, you know what's the margin of safety and it's it's great I love it <laughs> it is great. Absolutely fantastic. And Warren Buffett, who really taught us most about this, <clears throat> he always gives credit to Ben Graham. But honestly, I mean, Graham came up with the foundation of it all, which is how to understand a business and its future cash flow. But Warren really came up with this idea that all of these assets are, if they produce cash flow, they're, they're equivalents and you should look at them the same way. Yeah, totally. Totally. And so he, he gives examples in his many letters from uh, to Berkshire Hathaway as the chairman of the board. I think in 2014, he gave examples of buying a farm mm -hmm. using this strategy and buying um, a, a building in New York City using this strategy. Yeah. And of course, we know how many businesses he's bought privately that are private businesses using this strategy and then all the public businesses he owns. So he really walks the talk. And yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's, and I think the part that's kind of fun for me um, is thinking about whether or not we should even do it at all. And that decision is such a, like, what else could we do with that money? Like what else could I put it into to get a higher return? And, and, and it's just, it's really like joyful to think about it like that for me. Um, there's a lot of, cool things to do and That's like really cool. and and there's sort of that thought process of like what else could we do that would be better but then also like there's the personal aspect of it of like this would be something we could use and that's very different from owning a public company stock, you know? And so there's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of fun and kind of different and I'm in, I don't know, I can't decide if it's a good choice or not. So I don't know what we'll do and we're very much only early in it, but it's, it's a little bit amusing and uh, definitely finding some fun in it. Uh, I, I think I use this methodology all the time and we we're by the way we're in the middle of going through the checklists of of uh, the rule one story which is a a creation of of an investor that is saying i'm, I'm going to understand this business this kind of way we call it the story and we're kind of going through the checklist of the story and we're on the valuation part of the checklist yes. which is you know what we're going to get into here more we did the 10 cap valuation last time but man alive i do use this all the time uh our neighbor of ours is getting very elderly into his way well into his eighties. <clears throat> he isn't healthy and he would like us to buy his home. And we're, we're looking at it and, you know, we really want to help the guy. So we're not going to kind of look at it like we're, we're basically looking at it like protecting our neighborhood, right. Hmm. As a kind of a way, because there's so many developers coming in here. And, but when I look at the house, I have to, just cause I'm an investor, I have to look at it as an investment. And I can see that the price we're going to end up paying for this is not an investment price, I would Yeah, pay. and then you deal with that, too. I definitely have been dealing with that a little bit. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> dang it. You know, it's just, you, you know the criteria, you know, and, and like, I want to buy real estate on a 10 cap basis. That's right. And we can do it around here. Right. You know, I mean, I'm buying, if I buy this elderly care guy's house, I mean, we're doing it as just because we really care for him and we we've been caring for him for many years and we're going to help him out. But 
Um, man alive. It's like, I look at the numbers and I just kind of wince. It's, it's not where, where I would want to be. I know. Using my money like that. You yeah. Know? Yeah. But sometimes you but sort then of, there, well, I mean, something. it's like, it goes to our conversation of whenever that was a couple episodes ago about the dog and the people who maybe would have to spend a lot of money on their dog's medical care. Yeah. And there's lots of like, you know, this is my whole thing. Like people always say money can't buy happiness. Money can buy a lot of things that bring you happiness. One of those things is being able to help people out or take care of your dog. You know, like these are really important things that money can buy. And I think it's absolutely valid to spend money on those things as long as it's conscious. Well, I think that's such a powerful point. I was watching, um, you know, you know Shark Tank out here in the U.S. and it's it's uh, Robert Herjavec, I think is his name, really nice guy who did really well and and is uh, funding other people's businesses on this TV show. And there was a guy on there that wanted to build truck bed uh, liners with using U.S. labor only, and they were saying, "Look, you just don't have the margins. You're competing against companies that are building their stuff over in China. You need oh, to go man. over to China." That sucks. And he was like, "No, I, I, I have a strong value that I want to use U.S. labor." And Robert said something so powerful. I, regardless of your values on this, he said, "Look, you want to help people. You want to, you want to employ people that are your neighbors, and we understand that. And I feel that deeply because my father came over as an immigrant, and and someone employed him. You know." And it's a it's a big deal, and um, and we really admire that value. But here's the thing, man: um, you first you've got to make it successful, and then you master. First you figure it out, then you master it, and then you matter. <laughs> it was like that. <laughs> you make it, Whoa. you master it, then you matter. And what he was saying was, when you have resources and access to capital, then you can really do a lot of things. Yeah. He said, then yeah, you could bring, true. you could create a ton of jobs that are not manufacturing, but there are other kinds of jobs over here in the US. And then maybe you could get, have enough money to get really high levels of automation and you could bring it back over here. But first you've got to make it. And, and um, he said, you, you, you have to do what you can to make it. And that's a little bit like the same thing with investing is if you're giving away your seed capital, that's like being a farmer eating their seed corn. You know, yeah. it's like you you will not have a crop next year. Yeah. And if you give away your seed corn to your neighbor, then you are going to be much less able to help that neighbor down the road where they really need a major amount of help like yeah. our neighbor does. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, having, you get, make it, master it, and then matter. I, I think that was very powerful. I'd never heard that before. And I just thought that was really good. It's really nice. So. I would like to see companies actually do that i'd like to see i uh, you know apple comes to mind as some as a company that manufactures a ton in china and i think they're moving a lot of their manufacturing to vietnam actually but um but i would like to see them if there's ever a company that has made it there's one um they've mastered it they own a huge part of the market i would like to see them matter and bring more jobs back to the U.S. They're an American company. But you Me don't too. see companies I, actually, doing I'm, that. I'm, you, you just don't because no, they still, I don't know if there's ever a point where you really make it because they still, I mean, iPhones are the most expensive smartphones you can get. Samsung has them beat on price. The other ones have them beat on price. So if they get even more expensive, that 
might not go so well. I mean, that's just the fact of the market. So it's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that here before. You know, the the concept of beggaring your neighbor is deeply embedded and not discussed anywhere. Walmart is a massive beggar your neighbor facilitator. Yeah. And in that sense, they really, I mean, you you think all the the benefits of Walmart being that people, you know, we can all go down there and buy really cheap stuff. But at what cost? And the cost is the destruction of towns all over the United States that are boarded up. If you don't believe it, come down to the South sometime and take a little tour and you'll see one boarded up town after another within 10 miles of a Walmart. And that's that. And what that means is all of the associated jobs that were associated with the fact that you had a small grocer and a small pharmacy and a small, you know, a a small clothing store in your downtown square supported a dentist and they supported a lawyer and they supported an insurance agent and they supported a church and they supported a mosque and they support, right? They, all of these ancillary uh, jobs were based on there being this sort of foundation need for a downtown square where you could buy the basics. And Walmart took all the basics away and wiped out all of those profit, little profit centers which support a community. And they've turned it into a corporate profit center. The profits go to shareholders and to mostly, you know, foreign country companies that are building these things. And that, that just, I just mean, that's true. That's true. Does it? I mean, is it really? We don't have to spend this episode talking about this because no, we'll I, I really we'll want to move on to the checklist. But we got to talk um, about payback time. I think that sort of bemoaning the loss of the tiny town with its tiny hardware store and its tiny grocery store and its whatevers. I mean, I grew up in a town like that. It wasn't that great. I don't know. I don't, I don't see the, the like amazing, like, yeah, that's a way of life that once was and we're moving on and Walmarts of the world are going to get scarcer and scarcer as well as we move everything online. So things are always changing and they're changing fast. And, uh, uh, I get your point. I get your point, but I, I'm not sure that we're not like moving ahead with, with progress here that isn't worthwhile. Oh, I've, I've, I feel it strongly. I really do. I mean, I'm down here in the South and, and we leave, live near a small town and we have friends that have been in a community for almost a hundred years and watched the town that their family helped build, watched it die from a Walmart and watch the neighbors move away, watch the crime rates rise, watch people go on welfare, watch opioid addiction from lack of purpose in life. It just steamrolls downhill. Yeah, and at the same time, other towns grew and people moved to them. So, yeah. Well, uh, well, uh, we can have that talk another time. (laughs) Okay. I'm not a fan of, 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 of the loss of the kind of communities that built this country. I really am not. I think, I think when everybody moves to the city, there's a certain quality of anonymity that allows absolutely heinous behavior to exist. And that the entire value scale shifts to take care of me. Okay. From Let's move I'm on. Independent there. So you didn't want to get into this. No, I don't. Okay. 
<laughs> so we spent the last episode Moving on. learning something Moving new on. about the 10 cap, which if you missed that, go back and listen to it because it was new to me. It'll be new to you. It's different from what's in our book, Invested, and uh, was very, very intriguing to me in a very happy way. So that was wonderful to hear basically like we get to simplify the 10 cap calculations a lot which is really yeah. exciting that's and really we, good so we owe a big one to andy bargerstock and andy harriton and many thanks for those guys two cpas that guided us along to this change um cool. so we finished that one I believe, right? We finished on, I could really pocket the owner earnings and we talked a bunch about that and you decided to delete it. And that was the last one, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. That'll work. That's it. <laughs> That'll work. Okay. <laughs> and let's go, let's go on to the next method of valuation. So to make a point here about 10 cap, 10 cap doesn't value the business. It prices it. In other words, it says, I don't know what this thing is worth because knowing what a business is worth is a real questionable enterprise um, in terms of knowing with any level of certainty at all that you could decide, oh, this is worth X. Um, rather, we use a method that says, I don't know exactly what it's worth, but it's worth a lot more than I'm paying for it if I can get a 10% yield on the owner earnings of the business. And that means even if the business doesn't grow, I'm getting a benefit, right? In other words, if I'm the owner of this business, this this uh, house that I own, I'm getting the benefit in terms of cash flow at 10% yield. Even if I can't raise the rents, that's an okay place to sit with, with our money. So the downside here is fairly limited, right? And the upside is that, wow, you know, the community might just really get valuable. And this thing, we could increase rents on it, plus the value of the business would increase with that. So that's the essence of the theory of the 10 cap. This method is called payback time. I wrote a whole book about it called Payback Time. <laughs> that is <laughs> that is um, is really just the story of, of figuring out the price you want to pay for a business based on what private equity does, what we do without a public market. How much would you pay for a business? aside from the public market. And it turns out that private businesses' average purchase price is about seven and a half times their earnings. Okay, so about mm -hmm. 7.5 times the earnings of a company and you end up with a private business. Now, I'm going to hear a lot from people that are going, that's way too high, that I bought a private business for three times earnings or two times earnings. Yeah, and, and little tiny businesses can go for a huge range um, really across the board. But if you're talking about a business that's fairly substantial, I mean, I've, then it's bought, I've be bought and sold businesses at 12X, 13X, 14X. So it just depends on go. the kind of business. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, one of my, one of my brothers sold his business at 9.1X, right? And it was a sizable business, multi-million dollar company. So the, there's a big range here, but in general, the average is about seven and a half ballpark, P, a PE ratio of seven and a half, and that compares to a public stock PE ratio of 15 average. So over the last 140 years, so that yeah, not means so much these days. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> These days are much more expensive. Um, but that basically says that roughly speaking, a private business is selling for about half of what a public business is selling for. And that's essentially where the the number comes from when Charlie and, and Warren are talking about a margin of safety. They're talking about essentially paying a private business price for a public business. And that makes sense for them because they really don't care about the liquidity that is provided by a public business. That's not something they care at all about. So they don't want to pay a price for that. Not only that, but buying the company at a private price accounts for a lot of vicissitudes of life because if we're buying a private company, we're stuck with it. We're going to just, you can't just unload it the next day any more than you could buy a house and sell it the next day. It's not, you're going to take a loss if you do that. So um, we really like this method of finding a price to pay for the company. So you, you ready to jump into it? Yeah, I want to hear the the list. Here we are. It starts off with with the very difficult thing, which is I am confident in the long-term growth rate of earnings for this business. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Confident. I am confident in, in the long term. In other words, I feel like I know it well enough that I can project a reasonable long-term growth rate here for this company. So if I'm buying a private uh, uh, company on, like a, I am confident okay. in the long-term growth rate of this company. That's it? Right. Okay. Yeah. That's the first one. So, I mean, think about it. If you were to buy a house, you would probably have a pretty high degree of confidence in your ability to raise rents over time. Right. I mean, you could look and see, well, what have rents been raised over the last 20 years in this area, you know? And mm -hmm. are we getting a hotter market or a colder market? Mm -hmm. So you could make a reasonable guess. That's all we're asking for here is a reasonable guess. And we do that with a combination of knowing the business historically, which is what all our numbers are all about that we've talked about, and also looking out into the future. Where's where's this going? Where's the industry going? Where's this business going in terms of the of its position in the industry? And making a projection. Where where am I at with this? So if it's too hard to do that, then move to another business. This is a really good place to take a deep breath and say, am I really comfortable that I understand this business well enough to do this particular checkbox? And I got to tell you, you'd need to have simple and predictable businesses. That's just honestly so fundamental to doing this right. Yeah, picking so a growth rate is, is, you know, it's a, a more of an art than a science, I would say. <laughs> would you agree with certainly that? certainly is. I mean, yeah, it certainly is. I, I, well, I would say you want to make it as scientific as possible, yeah, right? By right. looking... <laughs> like, say, but at the same say, time, remembering this is the future in which this is the future. all vicissitudes could happen. Exactly. So you basically say, okay, this company has been growing at, let's say, say a really fast growing company. It's been growing at 19% a year, okay. year after year after year after year. And it's 12 years old. And there's no upper limit 
within within sight in an, in the next ten years. In other words, the the industry can support this company continuing to grow mm. at nineteen percent a year, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And the method of them growing at nineteen percent a year is build new stores, and those stores pay for themselves very quickly. Four year pay payout, and you've understood the business, and you realize there's no limit in a in the next decade for what they can do at the rate that they're going. So let's say the rate they're going is to build 100 new stores a year. They can continue that rate at least for the next 10 to 15 years. No question about it. Cool. Given the size of their industry, right? Okay. So you could have a pretty decent guess that this is going to continue rocking at that rate. Right? Yeah. So that's how you do it. All right? So that so happens then, to be then check what I would do is say, well, that all seems really reasonable at 19% per year. I feel very good about that number, and now I'm going to knock it down to 15% because I'm afraid of things showing up. There you go. You could you could do that. You could do that, and you'd be That's what maybe I always more do. conservative. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's not stupid. But num- the second thing on our list here is there's no ceiling to this level of growth. So whatever growth rate I pick, I, I need to make sure that for at least the next 15 years, this can't limit out based on the size of the industry, the amount of competition in the industry, the number of stores that you could possibly have out there. In other words, don't don't be projecting that you can put 10,000 restaurants out there if that simply won't occur, if that's not possible. If you look at other competitive places, you know, and say, okay, well, Olive Garden doesn't have 10,000 restaurants out there, right? Yeah, yeah. You, you just can't. Okay, so, so so there is no ceiling on this level of growth is the next one. Right. Okay. To this level of growth. And when you say for this at least level 15 years. And when you say this level of growth, do you mean the growth the growth rate that you've chosen or yeah. do you mean like a like a, you know, 3-year trailing the growth? The one I chose. Okay. So if I'm putting 19% on this company, I've got to say, okay, no ceiling here. Yeah. They can do that for the next 15 years. Yeah, okay. The reason I'm saying 15 years, honey, is because I want to make sure that in my theory, in my theoretical point where I'm going to sell this business, which we'll say is 10 years from now. I actually would love to never sell it, but let's just put a a number on it. We're going to go 10 years. Mm -hmm. In order to sell it for the PE ratio that I'm going to put on here for the multiple of earnings, um, then I need to know that level is going to continue for years after that. Mm-hmm. And so that that's where you go, okay, we're going to sell it in 10, but it's going to be sold to somebody that thinks it's going to keep doing that for at least another five. Totally. Totally. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. All right. Two. Number three, my average ratio of free cash to earnings is conservative and historically reasonable. My average ratio of free cash to earnings is reasonable? Mm-hmm. Is, yep, historically reasonable. Is reasonable and what? And and it's reasonably His, conservative and historically accurate, right? Wait, you keep changing the words. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'll read you what I wrote. My average ratio of free cash to earnings is reasonably conservative and historically reasonable. Ah, oh, there we go. Reasonably conservative... And historically reasonable? Right. So if this fictional company has 
free cash that's 100% of earnings every, every year historically, then I can certainly use that ratio of free cash to earnings for projecting free cash into the future, which is what I'm going to do. Got it. Okay. Cool. So I think what I have, this is trying to get at is just the number that you're using is, yeah, conservative and matches what's actually happened in the past. Okay. Yeah. All right. Number four, I've factored in cyclicality of cash flow. Oh, good one. Oh, yeah. I factored in cyclicality of cash flow. Right. So if I'm looking at a farm, I know farms are cyclical and I can look historically at the cycles here and kind of choose a midpoint in the cycle, not the peak cash flow of the cycle to project future cash flows for the next eight years. Right. Cause yeah. I'm eight years is long enough to have a cycle. You're going to get a recession in there someplace. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> we're laughing because we haven't had one. It's been uh, what, well, we're 12 years, I think? Oh, yeah. Well, that's we, true. We're in, we're in it, it now. now. But I think of this as like a suspended animation recession where we're sort of, we're like technically in a recession, but people are pretending like we're not. Exactly. It's weird. This is so bizarre. All right. So that's that's factored in. Number five, I'm using a solid projection of future capital expenditures, CapEx. I'm using a solid a solid projection, projection of future capex of future capex. Right. Now this is important because in the payback time math we are going to which we we cover other places. Well, we can cover it here. We're going to find operating cash flow and we're going to subtract capital expenditures. Mhm. Mm but we have to do that for years into the future. So we're going to have to figure out capital expenditures of this company. What do they usually spend on capital on, on both maintenance and growth capital expenditures? And we're going to use that number and project that into the future. So if we're looking at a company that builds a plant every 30 years and they happen to be building this new facility this year, their capital expenditures might be $3 billion when they're normally $500 million. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So we want to level that out for what it's going to be in the future. So, yeah, I mean, that makes total sense. Um, so I'm just thinking, like, if I see some companies, will, this is to get free cash flow, the, the, to get at free cash flow, to get example. at free cash flow, right. To get free cash flow as your, answer so to speak um and some companies tell you what their free cash flow is right in their annual report which is really really nice when they do that and sometimes they'll even break it down and explain why they arrived at that number and so yep i'm intrigued in fact, you would find that let me tell everybody where you'd find that you'd go to the 10k which is the annual report or whatever country you live in, go to the annual report, and that's 10K in the US. And then you would look for the investing section in the cash flow statement. So notes on the investing section, 
of the cash flow statement will immediately tell you about capital expenditures, and they may break it down into maintenance and growth. And sometimes, this is a total aside, but sometimes a company will say, we use as our metric, as our marker for how well we're doing this equation. And we use it because of these seven reasons. And this is what we measure our success against. And I always find that super interesting to see like what they think is important and try to figure out if it's different from uh, what I think is important. So, and it's important, by the way, on that note, it's important that you know why they're doing it. Um, Don't put schemes past your management team. I mean, there are management teams out there that can run accounting schemes and do it all the time. In in fact, we've talked before on the podcast about the, the sort of heinous use of EBITDA, earnings before interest taxes and, and depreciation depreciation. It's just like, man, companies have started using that and it's so beneficial for them to claim, you know, non-GAAP, hey, we're doing great, right? Yep. When in fact they're losing money hand over fist. Yeah. So yeah, you got to watch out when they start changing the way the industry uses these numbers, how they come about getting to these numbers. Um, well, they, they're not going to change the way they get to these numbers because these are gap numbers actually for free cash actually, flow. Free cash flow is not a gap number. Well, the operating part is, but operating the, cash flow is, yeah. The CapEx is, a, I guess they could mess with that a little bit, but yeah, if yeah. you take purchase yeah. of property and equipment, that's a gap number. That is, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So if Which you take that what, as your CapEx. Right. Then you're, then you're creating a number that they don't require companies produce. But maybe the most important is really. But that's fun. why you can just Google it, and you'll get the same number on every website. That's true, um, almost because almost everybody it's calculates two it now. gap numbers. One's just subtracted from the other, so that's the only way. Right. It's a computer doing that for every company. Um, yeah, it's not because it's like fancy calculations. So what you, what what Danielle's saying is that these numbers that we're going to use to figure out free cash flow, which we are then going to use to figure out the payback time, these numbers are. Gap numbers, they are produced on the income, or rather the financial statements in the cash flow statement. And the cash flow statement is broken into three categories. The first one is operations, the second one is investing, and the third one is finances or finances, financial. And um, that first one is, and the second one are what we're real interested in here. The first one is what is the actual money in the bank coming out of from your operations? That's the cash from mm-hmm. operations, mm-hmm. right? Or operational cash flow. And that's a that's on every cash flow statement for every public company. And then the next one, investing uh, cash flows, we're going to look at one line in there or sometimes two lines in there if they break it up, um, where they are putting money into capital expenditures that they call on some financial statements, purchase of property and equipment. So just understand that a capital expenditure is a purchase of property and equipment, stuff that you can't write off that year. That's what a capital expenditure is. So we're talking about railroad tracks and trucks and, uh, you know, big, big stuff. Building a new office building. Warehouses, yeah. Stuff like that. Robotic assembly lines. Peloton Huge just computer spent installations. 100, I want to say 100 million, it could be 90 million, close to 100 million dollars. 
on their new office and studio and all built out fanciness. So that was a giant capital expenditure <laughs> that they did. Who just did that? Peloton. Oh my gosh. Well, there's the well, owner saying, hey, yeah. we've done good. Let's live it up. Well, that was before uh, the COVID stuff. That was before their business went nuts, actually. Wow. Um, okay. So with a solid projection of future capital expenditures, why is that a checklist point? Are you not just pulling it from that gap number? No, we're not. We're, we're actually, uh, like I just said, we we may be looking at a gap number that's completely ridiculously low or completely ridiculously high for this year because of some extraordinary circumstance. Okay. Like maybe it's COVID and they're not spending any money on capital items or maybe they just built a plant. So um, yeah, we want to make sure that we're using a good number there. Okay. That should So it's basically like taking out the outliers, anything. Yeah low for a reason or high for a reason that you can right on. point at. Okay. Right on. And then now we run the numbers. So, oh, so that's the, it. Yeah. Well, the last thing on the list is uh, coming up with the payback time price. <laughs> and then once you have it, then I'm confident enough in this payback time price that I'd put 20% of my net worth into this one business wait, at wait, this wait. six this is year. the next point? This is the last one, right. Okay, wait a second. I'm com- I'm writing this down. I'm confident enough in my payback time price that I'd put 20% of my net worth in it. Yep. At the 6-year payback time price. Whoa. Okay. So effectively, what I'm saying on my checklist is, yeah, I'm going to calculate the eight-year payback time. But my experience with the eight-year payback time is that sometimes that's a really good price, sometimes it's not. Whereas the six-year payback time is almost always a really good price. That's a low price. That's a low price. Right? So we're... We're basically saying, yeah, I want, I want to, I want to get my money back faster than normal on a private enterprise here. Mm. Mm. Interesting. So, what would make you not check that box? Because the the check box is all about I'm confident enough in my price, and the factors that would make you confident have already been checked by going through the components. So, what would make you like check like? I'm confident in the long-term growth rate of this company. There's no ceiling on this level of growth. My average ratio is conservative and reasonable. <laughs> I'm using a solid projection of future capital expenditures and then, but not be confident. No, this is more than confident. This is, I'm putting 20% of my net worth in here. This uh-huh. is saying, this is equivalent of saying, if I had to just buy one company, this would be it. This, this is kind of on that level of But that's certainty. different. That's about the company, not about the price. Well, this is about the company and the price. In other words, I'm, I can't be confident enough in the valuation unless I'm confident of the company. And I'm confident enough of this company at this price that I'd load up the truck on it, like really load up the truck. This is a really, it, it's a, 
I, I, maybe I'm not saying it quite right on my checklist, and that's what's creating some some thoughts here. But the essence of this is to say, I really am willing to, you know, bet the bank on this. I'm, so I'm it's really to getting more towards the company overall at this price. At this price, right? You can't separate the two because the vicissitudes are more likely to bite you in the butt at a higher price, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, the, the things that can cause this to not be a good investment are exacerbated by paying a high price. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I this, if I pay a low price, in other words, if I'm buying what I think is a $10 bill and I pay $5 for it, I could find out it's a $6 bill and I'd still make money. Yeah. If I pay $10 or $12 for a $10 bill, I pay $10 for a $10 bill and I find out it's a $6 bill, I just lost 40% of my money. Yeah. A yeah. huge difference in, in the impact on, on your life um, if you don't take this really seriously. So we, we try to take this really seriously. Because you guys, there will be companies where you thought you bought a $10 bill and you bought a $1 bill. You're going to have some of those out there. They, you're not going to escape um, a meltdown, especially as we go forward into the future and companies are more and more attacked by more and more creative destruction that goes on from technology. It's, you know, companies don't last as long as they used to 200 years ago. So you've got to, first off, be aware of what's going on with your company and get out when the story changes. And then Second, if you don't, if you just sat there and, and, it, and you just got hammered because COVID came along and put your company into bankruptcy, um, you know, this is one of five companies or, you know, that are really solid companies. The other four make you rich. That's really, really sort of how it happens. Yep. And this is, this is getting at that level, yep. excuse me, of confidence. Yeah. With the price. Okay. Good. Good. Done. Donezo. Oof. We better move to the next episodio <laughs> for the next one. Yeah, I think we uh, we'll we'll take on the big one, which is the discounted cash flow margin of safety analysis. We'll get into that next time, which is okay. really quite interesting. All right. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks everybody. Go See Bye. you guys. Hi guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding, they really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important, it's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>